Hey everybody, this is Duncan Gammy. I thought I'd do something a little different for this week's show. I've put out over a hundred episodes of Dunk Tank at this point, and there are a lot of great moments that you may have missed. Or maybe ones that you want to re-listen to. So without further ado, please enjoy this special best of episode of Dunk Tank. Let's start with a clip from an episode with the late great John McAfee. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you've had some experience with what uh, people call like, the deep state. Uh, others might call it like New World Order or Illuminati. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Is, is that stuff real? I don't know what, it, what that actually means, deep state Illuminati. I can tell you what the truth is. Presidents, presidents have no power and have had no power since 1960. Um, let me tell you, the, the CIA runs America. Um, why? Well, first of all, they're all career patriots, and they are patriots people. They are. Good God, they love America. Um, they, you know what they, they call presidents? Transients. Got a new transient coming in. Whoa. Um, well, and, and they control the transient. How? Because presidents and, and Congress as well, they're all transients. All politicians are transients. Um, uh, the president and, and Congress uh, are there for four, eight years, certainly presidents, eight years max. <clears throat> they're career politicians, many of them. Or they, how many of them speak uh, Farsi or Saudi or, or, or Saudi or Arabic? Uh, how many of them understand the nuances of political uh, alliances, cultural histories, um, social and religious attitudes? No, they don't know jack shit. Whereas in the CIA, which is a lifetime job, you never quit the CIA. You join at 22, you're there until you die. Um, the, in the CIA, there are CIA agents who speak 35 fucking languages fluently. Right. Now, what do you they? What do you think they think of? A, and they all understand everything about the nuances of the world. What attitude do you think they have to a president, an idiot, an ignoramus, which they all are, compared to the CIA, comes into the office and expects to run this country? Huh? They ain't letting that happen, and they have not let that happen. How do they control presidents? Let's take the glaring example that we all know, Second Gulf War. CIA wanted Saddam out of power. They tried to assassinate him, didn't work. So they said, okay, somebody tell the president to bomb him. Now, they didn't just say go bomb him. No, you know what they said? Uh, Mr. President, uh, please have a seat. Um, we have some terrible news. We have just uh, discovered with absolute certainty that uh, Iraq has nuclear weapons and uh, they have ballistic missiles capable of reaching our closest ally, which is England. And Mr. President, we regret to tell you that uh, we fear an attack is imminent on England. Now, Mr. President, we are not here to advise you. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not yeah. our job. Only here to inform you. No, they're here to fucking control you. Right. What, what options did the president have? None. Now. We all knew, everybody knew they had no nuclear weapons. Europe knew, certainly all of the Middle East knew. The only people who didn't know were the president and Congress who were briefed by the CIA. Six hours later, the bombing started and we bombed Iraq into the Stone Ages. That's how the CIA operates, either through truth or, so, I mean, through lies or selective truth. Now, I think, sorry, Dwight. And let me finish this very important. Dwight please, Eisenhower yes. in 1960, when he left, left office, the last president with any power in America, and also the last president with any goddamn common sense except for um, JFK, that warned us. He said, if you do not do something, the CIA and the military industrial complex will steal America and all of your freedoms. But we did nothing, and they did. Now, the next president after Dwight Eisenhower, uh, JFK, he was a smart motherfucker, and he goes, wait a minute, you motherfuckers are controlling me. So he announced, I'm disbanding the CIA, and I'm taking all of those departments, we're going to parcel them out with the other 14 covert agencies, like uh, the NSA, Secret Service, the, uh, the military uh, covert agencies, and so on. Unfortunately, uh, two weeks later, uh, he had an accident, got shot in the head. Right. Uh, 
right? Now, tell me that the CIA does not run America. Now, you want to call that the deep state? I don't care what you call it. The Illuminati? They probably are very illuminated. They are the smartest (laughs) smartest people on this planet, I'll tell you that. Um, Because they are the best trained, the most educated, and the most involved in what they think is best for this country. Problem is, what they think is best for the country, according to the Constitution, shouldn't make a rat's ass of difference. Next, we have a clip from my conversation with Neil Woods, a former undercover cop. Um, I, I, I got to ask, because you did mention you had a few near-death experiences. What was the closest you came to dying or severe physical harm? Uh, God, take your pick. Um, you know, I've had, I've had the door answered, a samurai sword put to my throat and various things. But I suppose... I suppose the most dramatic one was um, I was doing an operation in Leicester and uh, very early on in the operation, I bought some heroin off this gangster who happened, just happened to be a real big hitter. He was a real meaty target, someone who we really wanted to catch. But he took a step back and I didn't see him for months. And so the operation carried on and we got masses of evidence. And the, the operation was coming to a conclusion, but we hadn't got any corroborative evidence against this particular person because he'd gone off the scene before it came to a point in the operation where I felt comfortable wearing any um, technical equipment, a camera. So this guy, I kept phoning this guy to get him out, to get him on film, and, and he, wasn't, he wasn't hands-on dealing. He was sending other people out. So I knew he liked his clothes, so I could come up with this plan of getting hold of some counterfeit clothing and trying to sell it to him. So through a custom, through a, through the backup team, got went through a customs contact and got hold of some counterfeit uh, Stone Island jackets. And I phoned the guy up and he took the bait and he decided, he agreed to meet me in this car park. And I got these jackets in plastic. And um, he brought two of his mates with him who I'd not met before. So although this guy trusted me, his two gangster mates didn't necessarily trust me. Anyway, the first thing he says to me, like, oh, yeah, the, yeah, these are interesting jackets, but do you just want to sell me these or do you want to buy something? So I'm thinking, well, I've only ever bought heroin off you. If I buy a crack as well, you'll get an extra 12 months in prison. So I says, well, if you carry in white, I'll have, a, I'll have a 20 stone from you. So he brings out this massive block of crack cocaine. I mean, huge, like bigger than a VHS like box, video box. You're too young to remember VHS video boxes. I, I do remember VHS. But... Yeah, you, you, just about, you just about remember it, right? So anyway, it's a massive block, and he's sat in the front of his car, cutting it, a little slither off it. While he's doing that, his mate is looking at me and then suddenly pushes me up against this metal fence, this metal railing at the back of the car park. And he starts feeling my clothes, and in no time at all, he's found the camera. Now, we're not talking James Bond tech here. No. This was like... um a denim jacket with metal studs and in the hole of one of the metal studs is the camera winking out at you if you find it and he found it and he said fucking hell man he is as well he is he's fucking 5-0 man he's fucking 5-0 he's heat so I'm thinking right and it, and this is one slight advantage I had working undercover is that when I was in a situation where I really needed when I was in trouble I was in danger I would get a surge of adrenaline and some people, myself included, me, that what happens is you get a sense of time slowing down. You get the feeling you've got all the time in the world to think. It's almost serenity for a moment. And so in that moment, I thought, OK, I've got a very long car park to get out here. There's no one else around. I'm completely secluded. And if I start running, they're going to catch me. And I'm dead because you, the fastest way for a to get a pack of wolves running after you is to run away. So I thought, I've got to prevent him convincing my mate that I am who I am. So I thought, I've got to give myself breathing space. So I thought, so I thought, so what I did is I went into a, a torrent of abuse to him. And I thought, I can't give him, let him get a word in edgeways, because if I give him the space to speak, it gives him the chance to convince him of what he's found. So I just launched at him and said, you, you're fucking picking up my clothes. What the fuck are you doing? Picking what the fuck? 
what are you doing picking up my fucking clothes? It's not even my fucking jacket. This belongs to Jackie. I picked it up off the back of the fucking chair this morning. It doesn't even belong to me. So I don't know what the fuck you're fucking on about, and I don't know what you're doing fucking my... And I'm do- as I'm doing this, I'm taking the jacket from his mate, from another, from the third one, I'm slowly folding it, putting it into this plastic, and then picking up the other ones from the floor. And I start walking really, really slowly. And I just kept up this torrent of abuse, repeating it. And he's just like, he's just completely stunned. He wasn't expecting this. He was like, but, but, but. So I just carried on walking and giving this abuse. And shouting like a madman as I'm walking across this car park. And then I'm starting to think, oh, I might just make it. I might just live this this day. Because I knew the calibre of people that these were. Anyway, I suddenly hear footsteps running behind me. And I and I thought, oh, God, I've got halfway. I'm thinking maybe if I turn around and get one punch in to one of them and then sprint to the exit, I might just get at least within sight of some other people. Anyway. It's the guy I know who's cut up the crack. And he comes up to me and says, hey, mate, don't you want your ting? And I'm thinking to myself, you want to sell me crack now? And he says, don't mind my mate, he's a dickhead. And I says, yeah, he is a dickhead. And he's picking at my fucking clothes. I don't know what he's fucking doing. And this time I'm getting the 20 quid out of my pocket and hand it over. And he gives me the crack, which he's wrapped in a little bit of cling film. And I shove it in my little key pocket in my jeans and... All the time I'm doing this, his mate stood by the car, literally screaming at him, saying, for fuck's sake, man, he's 5-0. And, and like many times I'm thinking 5-0, he's not old enough to have watched to buy 5-0. But, you know, it's still the street slang for police. And, and he's screaming at him. Anyway, he starts going back to the car and I keep walking. But then suddenly I hear a screech, the tyres take off as he's revving the engine and flying across the car park towards me. Clearly, he's convinced him that of what he's found. And the car comes after me. So then I to start running. I get to the exit the car park and turn left and start running along the, the pavement. The car turns around the corner and came up the pavement, driving after me along the pavement. So I sprinted. Now, where this is, is like it's the inner ring road of, of Leicester. So it's a dual carriageway leading to a roundabout where to the left of the roundabout, I could quite quickly get to a pedestrian area. The car park had been secluded, but actually I wasn't that far away from other people. Anyway, they join, they, they drive up, up the pavement after me and I sprint and there's a barrier protecting the pavement from the roundabout. And I just managed to get to that barrier where the car won't fit. So the car screeches to a halt and glancing behind, I reckon, they must have been no more than two metres away from me. And they were quite clearly trying to run me down. Yeah. So then they bumped off the pavement onto the road, went round the roundabout once. And by the time they'd come round the roundabout to have another look at me, I was already quite a way towards the pedestrian area of the city centre. So anyway, I went, I, I went back to the safe location to debrief and... Um, told them the description of the others, the, the registration of the car, what happened. Intel guy went away to do some, um, to do some research. And uh, when he came back, he says, wow, he was laughing. I don't know why they didn't just shoot you because there's loads of Intel, there's a gun in that car. So yeah, well, that's just the cop sense of humor. So, but yeah, that's probably the closest or one of the closest I came to, to getting killed. Next, you'll hear from Nicole Prousey, a neuroscientist who specializes in human sexuality. Because a lot of the um, sort of fear or concern over pornography is coming from guys who feel that they have issues with it and who feel like it's, it has some addictive hold on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's kind of a split depending on what type of studies you look at. So uh, when we bring people into the laboratory, uh, psychophysiologists, we're often showing them porn. That's usually how we uh, create a sexual response in the lab. And in that case, um, both men and women tend to produce this mixed uh, affective response. And what I mean by that is they view porn, they say, 
I feel sexually aroused and happy and amused and anxious, angry, you know, yeah. guilty. So the active uh, for both genders, a little bit uh, more mixed for women than for men, but not profoundly so, frankly. It's not, that difference is not always found. Um, but when we look in the literature that's on just how do you feel in general, you know, you view porn out in the world, how does that relate to your sexual satisfaction? How does that relate to relationship satisfaction? And it appears reversed in the genders. That is, the more women watch, the happier they are with their sexuality, the more pleasure they get, such as by higher orgasm consistency, the um, they report higher relationship satisfaction even. So it's not just restricted to sex per se. Mm-hmm. Men tend to have the opposite, um, especially at moderately high levels of viewing, which is kind of weird. There've been a few studies that found this weird curvilinear thing where like at really high levels, it's good for them for some reason. I don't totally understand that effect myself yet. Um, but my sense in that is my guess is where that gender difference comes from is we've had a few studies now looking at uh, masturbation differences and like why people are masturbating. And my guess is because most uh, relationships are heterosexual, the majority anyway, uh, when there's a heterosexual relationship, there's almost always a desire discrepancy. It's rare that people are like perfectly matched. And so if it's going to be one or the other, it's more commonly that men have a higher drive than women. Mm -hmm. And so that means masturbation has a very different meaning for a man than a woman. So if a guy is masturbating, it's more likely to be, you know, I wanted to have sex, but she wouldn't do it. She didn't want it. So now I'm stuck over here doing this thing I'd rather not be doing. So I'm very unhappy about my sex. Whereas the woman, you know, if she has the lower drive, well, the more she masturbates or wants it, the happier both people are. Cause he's like, that's awesome. I have higher drive and you're, you know, satisfying all these things. And he's telling her she's great. Everything's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) So I see it more as like this really a masturbation effect. And so when studies have controlled for masturbation, uh, they find they can no longer attribute the effects to pornography of the male uh, dissatisfaction. That is it. I think the masturbation uh, or slash porn, because uh, they're kind of one and the same, effects that we see in guys are largely related, I think, to that uh, discrepancy. You know, it's a, figuring out how to handle that in a heterosexual that relationship. That sense. That does make a lot of sense. Um, it's like, Parsimony, always parsimony. Happening. And then, sort of the last question I wanted to ask on this topic: What about um, just? I, I can see why there's a, sort of a resurgence and concern over this topic of porn with the rise of the internet. Where mm-hmm. I saw porn for the first time when I was in third grade. That's way too young, and I think that's true of a lot of people from my generation. And I don't know if we have any long-term like studies and what that does to kids, but I can't imagine that it's positive. Do do we know anything about that area? So this is a really tough place because uh, you cannot randomly assign children to view porn. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) uh, What that means is um, the kids who, and I always find this interesting because they always say kids who get exposed to porn some clearly do, you know, their friend voiced it on them or whatever. Um, but the vast majority from their adult reports sought it out yeah. and also were masturbating to it, you know, pre-18. They don't wait till they turn 18 to start <laughs> masturbating. Um, and so what happens ultimately is like we've got these two sides. Um, I don't think anyone's saying it's good for children. I think some are saying like it doesn't have much of an effect um, or we should be doing sex ed to help uh, mitigate those. And others are saying this melts their brain. Um, they're going to be developmentally disla- delayed. They're going to molest their sister, like just really extreme kind of claims. And the truth of the matter is we don't have data on either side because uh, it's the kids self sort. So kids who tend to have a higher drive because right, the drive doesn't just appear at 18 yeah. uh, are more likely to have sought out pornography, to be masturbating, to be doing these other sexual behaviors. And so, you know, whatever comes with being sexually active earlier, including porn viewing, then gets blamed on porn. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if that's really yeah. what's happening. To know if that was the case, you know, we would have to randomly assign kids to view porn and see what happened to the kids who did versus didn't. And that's illegal. That's risky. That's, you know, like it's, it's just never going to happen. So uh, we don't have good data really to say, you know, is it the type of kid who looks at this stuff um, early or is it? the porn itself. 
Now, please listen to Robin Hanson, an economist, as he talks about cryonics. So you uh, you put out uh, an article about uh, cryonics, um, which is uh, just last night. Yes, very interesting subject. Um, the idea of you know freezing your body with the hopes of sort of resurrecting you um, down the line when that's technologically feasible, um, and you you estimated the chance of being successfully brought back at something like five percent, uh, and you do have a methodology for that. But as part of it, um, you estimated the the chance of civilizational collapse as being uh, low, or at least less than, I guess, 50%. Right. Um, right. It, how strong do you feel about that with, you know, things like uh, nuclear weapons around and a lot of uh, almost accidents in, uh, in, in that regard, and also climate change on the horizon? Uh, it, do you feel like uh, civilizational collapse or something, you know, meaningfully catastrophic uh, is really that unlikely? Well, so, so the main thing would be what level were we talking about? Sure. So, uh, you know, in history, for example, civilizations rose and fall, uh, but they consistently rose again. So uh, you, you, if you're willing to, you know, suffer through a cycle like that and could still come out the other end, uh, then it's less of an issue. So for the purpose of cryonics, it's less about whether or not there's a cycle in civilization than whether the sort of bottom of the cycle would prevent you from being a cryonics patient. Now, um, you know, so, so for that, you know, the, the technology is just at the moment to just keep topping off tanks of liquid nitrogen. And, uh, you know, there's actually machines that make it. And so, it's a relatively low tech requirement. And if we were to develop plastination, which is a thing I talk about in the post, uh, which is a technology that's been proven in a lab, but hasn't been fielded commercially because of uh, such a small market, then that, then it would be even easier. You would just you know basically stick the old plastinated brain in a, in a hole in the ground and just wait. Uh, there wouldn't be any other supporting equipment required. And, and that would make it much easier to last through an extended downturn. So, um, you know, th that would be the issue in terms of a civilization fall. Uh, I, I certainly think that, you know, the, the trend of civilizations rising and fall in the past is strong enough that one should expect some degree of civilization fall in the future. Uh, but the question is, is that just a slowdown and an absolute growth rate? Is it a decline? Is it a massive decline? Th those are the, you know, things you're uncertain about. Fair enough. I, I, I am uh, one of the things that was interesting about your post was how I didn't realize how few people were actually willing to freeze their bodies after death. It seems like there's a large enough population of people who have the money who, right, uh, there, there's very little risk, I, I imagine, in doing something like this. So why not do it? As an economist, do you see any like weird incentive structure going on that's preventing people? Well, so I mentioned that in the ancient world, ancient Greece was really into mummification and they made millions of mummies. And the usual story back then was that mummification was going to preserve you to help you uh, live again in the future. Uh, most of the ancient world, of course, didn't do this, but the ancient world was fragmented across many different cultures and this one culture did. So today the world is vastly larger than it was in the ancient world. And if we were as culturally fragmented as they were, then you might have expected some place in the world to have a supporting culture. But the world is actually pretty culturally integrated. And so, I mean, that's something that suggests that if there's a civilization collapse, it'll be worldwide. Right. It won't be it's just be in one region because we do have this world integrated culture. Um, and so, you know, that means it's somewhat of a shame that it happens that if the world culture finds this uh, distasteful or, or unappealing, then everybody doesn't do it. And even the few people who try to do it face strong conformity penalties, that they're penalized for being mm -hmm. nonconformist. And that's a big issue in this area. So you think people just aren't doing it as much because of these nonconformity penalties? Or, I, I mean, it seems like- Yes. Really? Literally. Okay. <laughs> So that, like I mentioned in the post, if you ask people, do you think sort of the payoff and the chance of success here, 
you know, multiplied together are enough to justify the cost, you know, 10% of people say yes. But, you know, 10% of the world would be 700 million. And what we right. have so far is 3,000. So that, that's an enormous ratio of, of, you know, tiny, you know, half of a, you know, one part in 2,000 or something of people who would say they would do it, actually do it. And so that huge factor, I think, uh, has to be attributed to sort of the conformity penalties. That is, even though people in their head believe it would make sense, they know they would suffer very strong disapproval from people around them. And it's an important thing to realize about our world. We think of ourselves as embracing diversity and variety, and we think of ourselves as celebrating nonconformity. And we mostly do that on stuff we don't think matters. <laughs> so in your hairstyle, your clothes, the TV shows you like, the color decorations you have, on stuff we don't think matters, we are perfectly happy to embrace a wide range of, of styles and behavior. As soon as we think something really matters, we are all over, you know, slap, slap you know, sl slapping it down and, and crushing variety. We, we do not want to approve of stuff, variety and things we think matter. An interesting comparison here is that a similar number of people at a similar price pay to have their ashes thrown into space when they die. Hmm. And at, those don't make the news and their spouses don't divorce them because of that because it's just quirky, you see. Right. It doesn't really reflect any more fundamental differences, but cryonics suggests that you really believe it would work and you'd really be willing to do it. And that suggests that you really are fundamentally weird in a much more important, deeper way that offends people. Thank you for listening to Dunk Tank Best Of. Next up is Richard Rangham a primatologist. But, uh, but the essential claim is right, that, um, you know, obviously we don't have direct evidence that humans once had alpha males in which the uh, most dominant male in a social group achieved his position through physical violence and uh, used it to claim resources, including mating rights uh, to um, many or all of the females. Sorry to interrupt. So you, you said we don't have evidence for that? We don't have direct evidence. Okay. You know, we, we, we don't have a movie that go, takes us back right. half a million years. But what we do have is um, uh, very clear evidence from the primate world and from animals in general that you have alpha males uh, that achieve their position by dominating. And at some point, it sure seems as though in our ancestors, we would have had that same system. And in many ways, the question in my book, uh, or a question in the book is, when, when was that true? You know, was it true with, with uh, uh, some species of Homo? Was it species, was it true with Australopithecines? Was it true only earlier? And, and I conclude that it was true uh, up to about 300,000 years ago on the basis of the anatomical changes that we see in particularly the males. So uh, talk a little bit about those anatomical changes. What, what evidence does that give for there being a shift away from this alpha male society? Well, the big story that is associated with Homo sapiens that is not associated so far as we know with any other species of Homo is craniofacial feminization. In other words, males getting faces that look more like females. Mm. Uh, so males uh, getting uh, narrower faces, uh, faces that had reduced brow ridges, uh, faces that were altogether bigger, uh, so altogether smaller. Um, and I, the remarkable thing about this is the trend for males to become uh, less male-like and more female-like. And in animals, when we see that, it's associated with a reduction in male aggressiveness. And so it seems to me far and away the most reasonable thing to assume is that just as humans are now rather low in the scale of this day-to-day -day reactive aggression, uh, then the time when they trend towards a reduction in that kind of aggressiveness happened was when we see 
the reduction in maleness in the heads and faces. What's fascinating about what you're saying right now is that, uh, and uh, I, you, you do go to, uh, to some length to, to sort of inoculate uh, these claims from any uh, like political connotations, but there are a lot of people who are uh, super right wing who would look at that and be like, oh, well, you know, clearly nature is, is uh, on the side of the alpha males and our society has become more feminized and womanized. And uh, is, that, is that a concern you ever had uh, when you were writing this book? And does that at all, uh, I don't want to say impact your research, but is that something that's on your mind when you're, you're, you're discovering these things? Well, um, to write about uh, the evolution of aggression is something that is constantly nerve-wracking in the sense that uh, we know that um, people will use whatever means they can to support a particular viewpoint. And aggressiveness, of course, is something that is uh, politically and emotionally very salient. So, uh, so I'm always uh, careful about it. Um, and my aim is, uh, as you hinted, um, to try and be as objective as possible about the information and not to use it for straight political ends. You said, uh, was I worried that uh, <clears throat> people on the right wing would <clears throat> use the notion of a reduction in aggressiveness and a feminization of males uh, to their advantage, um, I'm sure they would, but so would people on the left wing. Right. Um, and, I, you know, in my mind, it's not really suitable for po the political um, discussion either way. You know, it doesn't particularly matter what happened 300,000 years ago. <laughs> uh, you know, what happens, what matters is what happens nowadays. But um, uh, at any rate, the you know, the, the big point I would want to make, and, and I've always advocated for um, my co-workers and students and so on, uh, is that um, we take extra care to avoid uh, expressing the results of this sort of analysis in ways that could be misinterpreted. Hey everybody, hope you're enjoying this best of. Next is a clip from a conversation with Derek Jensen, the environmentalist. Okay, right now, um, what percentage of your sensory perceptions, I guess sensory perceptions is, is redundant, What's, what, what percentage of your perceptions are uh, either created by or mediated by human beings as opposed to created by non-humans? For myself, and I'm, I'm counting pets as mediated by humans because because they're under our control. In this moment, 100%. No, I'm looking through a window. That means it's mediated, though. Okay. So 100% of what I see, hear, smell is either of human origin or is mediated by humans. If I were outside, I could at least see and hear and smell the forest. Um, but But in this moment... Everything, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a cat over here who is, is clamoring around in a box. And I'm hearing it clamoring in something made by a human. And the point that he's getting at is that when everything you perceive has been created by or mediated by humans, you're in sensory deprivation. And you are, and when you're in sensory deprivation, you begin to hallucinate. And... These hallucinations are what he calls most of our ideologies. And this really makes sense. Another way to say this is if everything you perceive is created by or mediated by humans, you can come to believe that humans are the only ones who matter. Mm. And that was an incredibly important point for me. Um, you can come to believe. Another way to say this in a different way having to do with food is if your experience, not what you think intellectually, but if your experience is that your food comes from the grocery store and your water comes from the tap, 
you'll identify with that system and you will defend to the death that system because your life depends on it. If, on the other hand, your experience is that your food comes from a grocery store, I'm sorry, comes from the land and your water comes from a river, you'll defend to the death those because your life depends on it. And this is so... Uh, this, this this permeates every part of our being, every part of of everything. A few years ago, maybe ten years ago, twelve years ago, I wrote this book called Dreams. And one part of it that, that sticks out in my head is that uh, at one point Sam Harris is talking about how um, basically any Christian from the 15th century might know everything there is to know about Christianity, which is a crazy thing for him to say right then. Um, but would be an ignoramus on every other subject. And I really objected to this strongly in the book. And let's leave off the whole Christianity thing and just take anybody from the 15th century and sure. compare them now. And yes, we can look up on Google and find out what the nearest star is, and we can find out all these things about what the sun's composition is, but can you navigate by the stars? Can you find your way home by the stars? No. And probably the average person in the 15th century, if they were a mile and a half from home, they look up at the sky and they know where to go. And can you, could you, and I'm not putting you on the spot because I sure as hell couldn't. Right, could, yeah. Uh, could you, if you were out in a forest right now, could you find some dinner? No. I'd, <laughs> no. I would probably make somebody's dinner. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so there you go. Could you, could you figure out whether to avoid this bear or not? Um, and so the, the point is that our knowledge has, I don't think increased, it's changed and it's become less personally held and less direct. I mean, for God's sake, even 120 years ago, most people, at least rural people would have known how to build a chicken coop or maybe a house. And I sure as hell couldn't, um, the other day, I had to, a <laughs> a bear put a put a paw through some rotting wood in a shed, and I had to nail some boards over it, and that's pretty much. I was pretty much, uh, well, I was very proud of myself for this great constructive achievement of finding two rotting boards and pounding three nails into each one. Yeah. Um, but but a hundred years ago, that would have been, or like my mom. Um, she died a year and a half ago, and she knew how, I mean, sewing was, was absolutely second nature to her. And I've read about how sewing as a skill, both with a machine and by hand, are completely collapsing because of cheap, cheap, uh, cheap clothing. Um, and so there's all sorts of, another way to say, there are two more stories on this. Sorry if I'm rambling too much. No, um, no, no, no. Um, one is that, uh, that, that, and I, I mean, I write books, so of course I'm in favor of liter literacy, yes. but they've done studies that, that when people become literate, both individually and, uh, as a group, uh, their memory goes down, their, their capacity to remember goes down. This makes perfect sense because you no longer have to remember a phone number. You no longer have to remember a thing. You no longer have to remember anything because you can write it down. And so there are some trade-offs. Another example of that is when I was a kid, I had this weird gift that I could add and multiply um, phenomenally fast. And so how old are you? I'm 24. Oh, so, oh God, you wouldn't certainly not remember this, but you may have seen in movies you know the old-style cash register? Like you see at a grocery store? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, I've seen it in movies. In movies? Um, so I, I grew up with those. And um, at the grocery store and at the fabric store and other places, um, when I'm maybe seven and eight, um, I was a little showman, or my mom would show me off or whatever, that I would stand there at the cash, at the cash register as my mom was, as they were doing the groceries, and um, I, would, I would say the numbers out loud. So we buy bananas for however much they were, 14 cents, and then 
bread for 27 cents. That makes 41. And I would just add it up out loud. And the checkers would call people from all of us. Oh, you got to come see this. Okay. So I had this, this real gift. I could do this. And you know when I lost it? When I, bought my, when I got my first calculator for a birthday present or for whatever present when I was about in seventh grade. That's about mm-hmm. when calculators came out for the nerds. And um, I started using the calculator. And I lost, the, I lost the muscles to do it. Yeah. And the, the point is that I outsourced. Oh, I love that. I outsourced arithmetic. Yeah. <laughs> and so my point is that all of these things, even, even, um, oh, God, the other day I was, okay, I don't have a cell phone. Um, Good for you. Um, <laughs> thanks. Um, I, the other day I was at the, at the store and I lost my wallet. I mean, I, yeah, I, no, I had my wallet. I lost my car key. I'm like, what am I going to do? And then I realized that because I have an address book at home, I don't actually know anybody's phone number. It's like, right. I realized I can't even call anybody. To, to come pick me up. Eventually, it ends up that somebody had turned in my key and everything was fine. But for like 10 minutes, it's like, huh. <laughs> Next is a clip from a conversation I had with Bart Campolo, a former preacher turned secular humanist. No, that's, that's very true. And, and so, yeah, so I feel very fortunate, Duncan, that when I, I had when I, I'd come to the end of my Christian journey, that I was allowed to get off the bus. Um, the one thing that you mentioned in there that I want to touch on was the um, having a low economic footprint, which I talked to um, this guy who wrote a book recently called Excellent Sheep. It's all about tools and elite colleges. Um, they're the sons and daughters of... You talked to that guy? I, I did, yeah. Um, I yeah. love that book. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That, that book was incredibly formative. Yeah, when I was at USC... I read that book. I quoted that book. Uh, it, yeah, gosh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I'm glad you got to talk uh, to him. And I'm, I'm, I know you have a podcast. I'm sure if you're interested, he would definitely respond to you um, if he's going to respond to me. Um, but the the thing that he was talking about was that a lot of these kids, having grown up in um, you know sort of an upper crust of society, they have in one. In one sense, they have all the options in the world available to them. But in another sense, because of the lifestyle they're used to, their options are actually quite narrow. Um, do you think that in many ways that um, we sort of limit ourselves to uh, just based off of uh, financial, quote-unquote, necessity? Yeah, I mean, I remember a friend of mine who was a marriage counselor out in California um, in Orange County telling me about talking to this couple whose marriage was coming apart because they just, they were both working so hard and they just didn't see each other anymore and their sexual relationship had faltered and their intimacy was gone and they were talking and he said, well, you know, couldn't you, couldn't one of you cut couldn't you both cut back or couldn't one of you leave their job and and um and they were like oh no like we are we are stretched out we're we're we're, we're at the edge we're, we're just barely hanging on he said after the session was over he walked out into the parking lot and he saw them getting into their mercedes and and, and her into her lexus and he looked up their address and realized that they lived on a on a house overlooking the beach and he thought <laughs> You know, if you sold that house and moved to a house, not talking about going into poverty, but it's like if you, if you lived, you know, five miles inland and drove Hondas, he said they could have quit those jobs easily or cut back or cut to half time. And, and he said the, the, the problem wasn't that they were so materialistic. He said the problem was is that when he brought that up, he said, he said the next meeting, he asked them about that. And, and, and they looked at each other and they said, wow, that never occurred to us. Like they had never thought about living below their means. 
because they had, you know, they, they were in a culture and they were around. Everybody was trying to, you know, get the house on the beach. Everybody was trying to get the cars. Everybody was trying to get the, 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 the look and, 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 and the, the, the vacations and whatnot. And, and, and the weird thing is, is I think for most of us, it, it's a little bit like that old David Foster Wallace joke about the two fish swimming along and the old fish comes up to the two little young fish and says, hey, how's the water? And the one fish looks at the other and says, what's water? Like, you don't even know the atmosphere you're swimming in. You know, you're like, it, it's just a part of your world. And I think for a lot of us, the, the economic, for, especially for people who are um, talented, bright, privileged, educated, um, it's just the water they've been swimming in. And the idea of that this is a choice and that you could significantly lower your your economic footprint, and that would relieve all kinds of pressure and create all kinds of new options for you. It, it's not so yeah. much that people are like, I would never do that. I value my money too much, or I value my um, – it's, it's just never occurred to them. They just never have thought about it. They've never known anybody that did it. You know, we used to joke when I was in mission work and about being downwardly mobile, but like, there just aren't a lot of people that sort of embrace the, the, the freedom that comes with living below your means. Now listen to Noam Chomsky's final message to humanity. Yes. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you, um, Bertrand Russell, who I understand uh, is well-regarded in your eyes, uh, was once asked, suppose this film was going to be looked at by our descendants in a thousand years' time, uh, what would you think it's worth it to tell that generation? I know you're not one for grand statements or anything like that, but do you want to take a stab at that question? Well, sure. I would tell them, if you're alive and hearing this, it's a miracle because your not-so-remote ancestors uh, were acting in a way which was condemning you and everyone else to death. Well, on that, uh, on that note, Noam, thank you very much for your time. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. Okay, good to talk to you. Sorry, we couldn't be face-to-face. -face. Hey, no worries. Um... Finally, please enjoy this conversation with Bethany McLean as she talks about the failures of Enron and potentially Tesla. Presumably, there are plenty of really smart people on Wall Street who should have been able to see this, right? Yeah, well, I think I think a couple of things about that. So I think one for all that everybody talks about the widespread availability of information, that's it's actually not true. Information, particularly the information you most need need to know, travels in very small closed loops. So despite the fact that there was a cadre of skeptics on Wall Street about Enron, that skepticism didn't make it into the mainstream discourse at all. The information traveled in 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 completely um, separate circles. Um, I think also Enron was really really good at playing the game of meeting or beating the earnings earnings expectations that Wall Street analysts had. And there were and are a lot of investors who don't want to do their homework and just want a company that will meet or beat earnings expectations and don't want to look any deeper than that. And when a company becomes so expert at delivering exactly what investors want to see, they can attain this cult-like status where people people where people won't won't question the the set of beliefs surrounding them um and then i think lastly it was the way that this this quality of intellectual intimidation that jeff skilling had that he was able to convince everybody that he and the rest of the enron team literally were the smartest guys in the room and so even people who didn't knew they didn't quite understand the business, thought, well, these guys are so smart. They just understand something I don't understand and I don't have to worry about it because they're so smart. And so I think that 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 was another factor in it. But it but it's fascinating, right? Because the the problems that that ultimately brought Enron down, Andy Fastow's games, the existence of these partnerships, the lack of cash flow, they, they were right there in the financial statements. Not not clearly exposed, but you know, you, you and and but 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 it was there. People just didn't want to see it. That's on that 
do you see any parallels then between the collapse of Enron and uh, the collapse of the the mortgage business in 2008? The idea that there were some innovations um, to begin with, but then it sort of got out of control and people just trusted the smart guys to know what they were doing. Yeah. Well, I I do. I mean, it's the same old principle at the end of it, right? If it seems too good to be true, maybe it is. In Enron's case, if it seemed too good to be true that a Houston-based energy company could be deliver exactly the earnings that investors wanted to see quarter after quarter and make everybody rich. And in the case of subprime mortgages, it was that you could give mortgages to people who didn't have a chance of paying them back. And somehow the people in the system were all going to be just fine and dandy. And you look at them after the collapse and you say, how could we ever have believed that? But you have to remember that everybody did believe it in the moment. So I, I, I think that's that's the biggest parallel to me, that that willing that willingness to believe in the thing that after the fact is so obviously going to seem insane that you yeah. ever believed it. Do you do you think then that uh, there are any lessons here for business people or um, journalists? Um, I mean, have we as a society or as our politics really integrated what you see to be the lessons of Enron? Um, I don't think so. No, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think we'll ever learn them. And in some ways, maybe we don't want to learn them because part of business, part of American business in particular is optimism. And if you are so focused on the lessons and the risks, then some of the very real innovations that move our world forward won't won't happen either. Um, so I'm, and then if, if everybody did really focus on always doing the right thing and carefully monitoring all this stuff, I wouldn't have anything to write about. So I don't really want to <laughs> either speaking selfishly. Um, um, but, but no, seriously, I think it's, it's human nature and it's the nature of bubbles that people start to believe in things that are going to seem crazy after, after the fact. And it happens it's happened throughout time immemorial, right? From the from the tulip bubble um, through Enron through to Theranos most most recently, um, or maybe even Tesla, to 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 invoke another controversial name. That's it's it's the way the world works. I don't I don't think it's ever going to be fixed, and I'm not sure you ever want it to be entirely fixed. Do you think Tesla's a bubble? <laughs> I I do I do. Interesting. Uh, it, doesn't mean Elon Musk isn't a genius and it doesn't mean that he hasn't changed the world. But I think that there are some fundamental problems at Tesla that perhaps the bulls don't want to um, wrestle with. That's all, folks. Thank you for listening to this best of and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.